You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the 37th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. In the last show, we talked about the second wave of secession after President Lincoln issued a proclamation calling for the states to furnish 75,000 militia to put down the rebellion. With that second wave of secession, the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., found itself in a perilous position, with Virginia just across the Potomac River and surrounded on the other three sides by the still-wavering slave state of Maryland. Obviously, Maryland's geographic location made the state's situation a matter of immediate and direct concern for the Lincoln administration, especially since Maryland had always fashioned a distinctly southern image for itself, and the city of Baltimore took inordinate pride in its pro-southern sympathies. And then, particularly in the Maryland counties on the eastern shore, where slavery was most prevalent, those counties were like a northern outpost of the Deep South. And so, for several weeks in April 1861, the prospects for the Union cause in Maryland did not look good. This situation caused no small amount of alarm and anxiety in Washington, since Maryland's loss would strand the capital well inside hostile territory. Maryland's initial unfavorable reaction to Lincoln's proclamation produced anxiety in Washington since the state controlled the only railroad access to the capital from the north. That meant any troops from loyal northern states on their way to reinforce the endangered capital would have to pass through Maryland. And those reinforcements were desperately needed since at the outbreak of the war, the safety of the capital seemed to hang by the slimmest of threads. Washington itself was a city of southern antecedents and much southern sympathy, and a secessionist plot to seize the capital had been rumored since Lincoln's inauguration on March 4th. To assist regular troops in spoiling any such plots, District of Columbia militia companies had begun to be mobilized before the inauguration, but the loyalties of many of their members were questionable. By April 13th, Old General Scott had only six companies of fully equipped regular army soldiers in Washington, two companies of dismounted cavalry, 200 Marines, and 15 companies of militia. But Scott knew that if it came down to a fight for the capital, most of the District of Columbia militia couldn't be relied upon. Both the General-in-Chief of the Army and the President knew only too well how terribly vulnerable Washington was to attack. They both knew that a quick Confederate strike at Washington made good sense. If the Confederacy could seize the nation's capital, 
it would give the new Southern Slave Republic instant credibility and a strong bid for foreign recognition, not to mention the humiliation it would inflict on the Lincoln administration. And so Winfield Scott and Abraham Lincoln both feared for the security of the capital. And then within the space of 10 days that April, as northern troops attempting to pass through volatile and unstable Baltimore were violently attacked, and then as those critically important rail lines, as well as telegraph lines, through Maryland were cut, the nation's capital found itself isolated from all communication with the north, and the residents of Washington lived in a state of constant fear and near panic. Henry Villard, correspondent for the New York Tribune, said, quote, Literally, it was as though the government of a great nation had been suddenly removed to an island in mid-ocean in a state of entire isolation. End quote. Stores closed. Visitors abandoned the city. The great hotels emptied out. Windows and doors in government offices were barricaded. Orders went out that the city's defenders were to make their last stand in the fortress-like treasury building. Every day, anxious and fearful civilians went to the train station three blocks north of the Capitol building, where they peered up the tracks, hoping to greet trainloads of northern troops that were needed to protect the vulnerable Capitol. John Nicolay, Lincoln's secretary, wrote to his fiancée, quote, Here we were, in this city, in charge of all the public buildings, property, and archives, with only about 2,000 reliable men to defend it, end quote. And speaking later of those anxious days in an isolated Washington, Abraham Lincoln would say, quote, On the 12th day of April, 1861, the insurgents committed the flagrant act of civil war by the bombardment and capture of Fort Sumter. Immediately afterward, all the roads and avenues to this city were obstructed, and the capital was put into the condition of a siege, end quote. In New York City, the diarist George Templeton Strong wrote, no dispatches from Washington. People talk darkly of its being attacked before our reinforcements come to the rescue, and everyone said we must not be surprised by news that Lincoln and Seward and all the administration are prisoners. For anyone who has visited Washington, D.C. in modern times, it's hard to imagine America's capital city as it looked back in the days of yore. In his book, Year of Meteors, historian Douglas Edgerton writes, quote, The capital was a forlorn place in 1861, and not merely because so many Southern politicians and their wives had abandoned the city for Montgomery. Visiting 19 years before, Charles Dickens had described Washington as a city of magnificent intentions and little had changed in the past two decades to alter that. The wide, half-built, unpaved streets were alternately oceans of mud or deep in dust, Charles Francis Adams, Jr. complained. Workers high atop a forest of cranes labored to complete the new Capitol Dome, and across the mall the Washington Monument sat unfinished, a white stump surrounded by discarded chunks of stone. Both ongoing projects, some visitors reflected, were apt metaphors for the broken, half-completed Union. End quote. The city, if you included the suburb of Georgetown, was home to about 75,000 people at the outbreak of the Civil War. Included in that number were 3,185 slaves and a little over 11,000 free blacks, both of whom were required to carry written passes or freedom papers. 
Charles Francis Adams, Jr. said that the capital sandwiched as it was between the slave states of Maryland and Virginia, quote, was altogether Southern in sympathy and in expression, end quote. Pennsylvania Avenue was deeply rutted and in urgent need of repair. It was lined with small shops and a whole host of saloons. Most of the city's residents lived in plain, wood or brick houses. Dingy, seedy neighborhoods huddled up against the few imposing government buildings or were set in the midst of vast empty lots, marshland, or cypress groves. In the fall and spring, the west end of town turned into an impassable sea of mud, and even army mules got stuck in the muck of the unpaved streets. In the summer, a permanent cloud of dust hung in the air over the city, and everyone with a place to go fled the unbearable heat and humidity. The whole place reminded the reporter Henry Villard of an overgrown village with, quote, a distinctly southern air of indolence and sloth, end quote. But, be it ever so humble, in April of 1861, Washington, D.C. was both symbol of the Union and seat of the federal government. And so, depending on your leanings and sympathies, it was either a prize to be captured or a crown jewel to be safeguarded. As wild rumors of imminent invasion swept through Washington, thousands upon thousands of men in the loyal northern states were flocking to the colors. Almost every state quickly exceeded its quota of volunteers, but getting the troops to Washington was another matter. It would take time to train and equip the raw volunteers rushing to arms, so the first troops to respond to Abraham Lincoln's call for soldiers would of necessity have to be from already existing militia units. Massachusetts and New York promised they would quickly dispatch troops from such units, but the first militiamen to rush to the defense of the nation's capital came from my home state, Pennsylvania. On April 15th, the day Lincoln issued his proclamation calling for 75,000 militia to suppress the rebellion, he sent a special appeal for troops to defend the capital to his friend and political ally, Pennsylvania's Republican governor, Andrew G. Curtin. And Curtin assured the president that he had one regiment, the 1st Pennsylvania, all ready for a quick departure. Curtin said that the regiment would move to Harrisburg on the 17th, depart for Washington on the morning of the 18th, and arrive in the capital that same afternoon. The 1st Pennsylvania was composed of five militia companies, the Washington Artillery, National Light Infantry, Ringgold Light Artillery, Logan Guards, and Allentown National Light Infantry. Their trip by rail to the nation's capital would be a relatively short one. The first leg would cover 80 miles from Harrisburg to Baltimore, where they would change trains, and then another 40 miles from Baltimore to Washington. The men had been warned about Baltimore's pro-Confederate sympathies, though, and were told to expect trouble as they passed through the city. Accompanying Captain James Wren, commander of the Washington Artillery from Pottsville, was his servant, a 65-year-old African-American man named Nick Biddle. Biddle often accompanied Wren while the artillery unit was drilling, acting as the captain's orderly, and in recognition of his service with the unit, he had been given a uniform to wear. Some of the Pennsylvania militiamen, aware that there could be trouble as they passed through Baltimore, asked Biddle if he were afraid of the rowdies waiting for them in the city, and jokingly warned him that the secessionists may catch him and sell him down in Georgia. The white militiamen may have been joking, but Nick Biddle, who had been born a slave and escaped to freedom on the Underground Railroad, 
had a real reason to fear the journey through Maryland, but he replied seriously that he was going to Washington trusting in the Lord and that he wouldn't be scared away by the devil himself. Some of the militiamen were worried, however, since very few carried any weapons. They had been ordered to store their muskets at their respective armories before departing for Harrisburg, and then they would be issued new guns when they arrived at the state capitol. But it turned out the Harrisburg armory had few available rifles, and so most of the men of the 1st Pennsylvania set off on their journey to Washington unarmed. Many of them were angry about this, and quite rightly, especially after they were told that they could expect trouble while passing through Baltimore. Fortunately, traveling on the same train as the militiamen were 40 well-armed soldiers of the regular army on their way from the barracks at Carlisle, Pennsylvania, to Baltimore to reinforce Fort McHenry. The Baltimoreans had received advance word about the Pennsylvania militiamen's arrival, and so thousands of pro-Confederate citizens had turned out to meet the Pennsylvanians when their train stopped at the Bolton Station. Now, it's important to remember that no trains actually ran directly through Baltimore. We mentioned this back when we talked about President-elect Lincoln's middle-of-the-night passage through the city with Alan Pinkerton. But if you guys don't remember, well, train passengers had to disembark on one side of Baltimore at the station where they arrived, and then proceed on foot or by carriage or whatever to another station on the other side of the city where they would catch another train and resume their journey. Or train cars could be decoupled at one station, towed slowly through the streets of Baltimore by a team of horses, and then the cars would be connected to another engine and resume the trip. But anyway, the Pennsylvania militiamen would be disembarking from their train and marching through the city to the other train station, where they'd continue their trip to Washington. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As the Pennsylvanians arrived in Baltimore and climbed down from their train, the crowd that had gathered started to heckle them, raising cheers for Jefferson Davis and the Confederacy. Some people in the crowd took great delight in mocking the non-military look of some of the militiamen. 
Besides being mostly unarmed, the volunteers who hailed from eastern Pennsylvania coal mining country were either dressed in a motley assortment of ill-matching militia uniforms or in their civilian clothes. Ignoring the jeers of the crowd, the 1st Pennsylvania quickly formed up in a column and prepared to march through the city. The lieutenant in command of the regulars had offered to escort the Pennsylvanians part of the way, and the militia officers had eagerly accepted the offer, so the regular army soldiers would lead the way. The column would also be escorted by a thin line of Baltimore police officers spaced ten paces apart. As the column moved out, flanked by the policemen, the unfriendly crowd turned into a hostile, aggressive mob that closely followed and pressed in upon the militiamen and soldiers as they marched along. And then at the intersection of Charles Street, the regular army soldiers turned off and headed for Fort McHenry. The Pennsylvanian's historian recalled that after that, quote, the mob lashed itself into a perfect fury, end quote. The now furious mob screamed out threats. You will never get back to Pennsylvania. Let the police go and we will lick you. And then the Pennsylvanians started to hear cries of stone them, kill them. And hooligans started to break through the police line and attempted to push into the marching column and disrupt it. The boldest of them began to spit, kick, and punch the Pennsylvanians. Those few militiamen with muskets used them as clubs to beat back the mob, but most of the volunteers kept marching forward without fighting back, as they had been ordered. Then some people in the mob spied Nick Biddle and shouted, Nigger in uniform! Others took up the cry, and in moments an ominous chant was rolling over the harried and abused column of militiamen. Nigger in uniform! Nigger in uniform! The fact that the Yankees would dare to put a black man into uniform pushed the mob to new heights of fury. Jagged chunks of brick and heavy pieces of paving stones started to be thrown at the men. Finally, the volunteers reached the other train station, the Camden Street Station, but the howling mob closed in on them, making a last, desperate effort to stop the Pennsylvanians from boarding the waiting train. A brick hit Private David Jacobs in the mouth, knocking out his teeth and leaving him briefly unconscious. Private Dare was also struck by a brick. It hit him on the side of the head, rendering him deaf in one ear for the rest of his life. But Dare spotted the man who had hurled the brick at him and, enraged, ran over with his musket and clubbed the man to the ground. Suddenly, a chunk of brick hit Nick Biddle in the head, leaving a deep, profusely bleeding gash. Blood spilling down onto his uniform, Biddle stumbled, but was helped onto the train by his comrades. To keep the mob at bay, some of the men with muskets leaned out of the passenger car windows and cocked their weapons as if they were getting ready to fire. Finally, at about 4 p.m., the train pulled away from the station, and the battered and exhausted volunteers continued on to Washington. When the Pennsylvanians arrived in Washington that evening, their reception was much different, and they were greeted and cheered by enthusiastic crowds. Just the day before, the city had been dismayed to learn of Virginia's secession, and now they were overjoyed that reinforcements had started to arrive to strengthen the vulnerable capital's defenses. But the first flush of excitement over the militia's arrival soon wore off, for it was questionable whether the first Pennsylvania's appearance was more reassuring than alarming. Most of the 400 or so men were unarmed and poorly trained, and worse, word quickly spread of their harrowing experience in Baltimore. 
Nevertheless, the Pennsylvania volunteers were welcomed and honored for their prompt response to Abraham Lincoln's call to arms. Since there were no barracks in the city, the men were quartered in the north wing of the Capitol building. A grateful Lincoln went up to the Capitol to personally thank the Pennsylvanians. The president supposedly shook hands with Nick Biddle and encouraged him to seek medical care, but Biddle refused, wanting to stay close to Captain Wren and the rest of the company from Pottsville. Wren, Biddle, and the men of the Washington Artillery remained in the Capitol area until their 90-day enlistment expired, and then they went home. Many of the men would re-enlist and form Company B of the 48th Pennsylvania, and would have a role in digging the mine shaft at Petersburg, Virginia, that led to the Battle of the Crater in July 1864. But Nick Biddle had seen enough of soldiering to last him a lifetime, and he would stay at home in Pottsville for the rest of the war. He would die in 1876. To the end of his days, Biddle considered the scar on his head to be his military badge of honor. You guys will recall that last week we said that down in Virginia, on April 17, 1861, ex-Governor Henry Wise got up before the state secession convention and laid a watch and a horse pistol on the podium in front of him and declared that even as he spoke, Virginia militia, on his orders, were seizing the Federal Armory at Harper's Ferry and the Gosport Navy Yard near Norfolk. The feisty ex-Governor, purely on the strength of his personality, had set those plans in motion without consulting Virginia's current governor, John Letcher, whom the fire-eater Wise considered to be lukewarm on secession. Wise had met with militia officers on April 16th and made plans to seize the armory and navy yard, and so on April 18th, the day after the passage of Virginia's secession ordinance, Letcher belatedly approved the hostile moves. Harper's Ferry, Virginia, located at the confluence of the Potomac and Shenandoah Rivers, was the site of the famous arsenal and armory where in 1859 John Brown had launched his ill-fated enterprise to invade the South. In 1861, the town's strategic importance lay in the fact that it was the home of one of the two armories owned by the federal government where there was machinery capable of producing modern rifled muskets. The government's other rifle-producing armory was located at Springfield, Massachusetts. Right. So at Harper's Ferry, the armory and arsenal were under the protection of First Lieutenant Roger Jones of the U.S. Army. Jones had less than 50 soldiers under his command with which to defend the federal works. On April 18th, Lieutenant Jones learned that Virginia militia was gathering at Halltown, just four miles away. Jones, knowing it would be futile to resist any sizable number of militia with his small garrison, immediately set his tiny command to work, preparing the armory and arsenal for destruction. He made sure the 15,000 crated muskets were surrounded by flammables. It took all day for Jones and his men, assisted by some of the arsenal's civilian workmen, to complete their preparations and then the lieutenant set men out along the main road to act as pickets and warn of any approaching enemy force. Meanwhile, at Halltown, between 300 and 400 militiamen had gathered, supported by the Staunton Artillery, a battery of six guns commanded by John Daniel Imbaden. The little army started off down the road toward Harper's Ferry at about 8 o'clock on the evening of April 18th. One member of the group later described the scene, recalling, quote, 
The stars twinkled clear and chill overhead, and one could hear the measured tread of men and the occasional half-whispered word of command. End quote. Despite being challenged several times by Jones's pickets, the militia pressed ahead through the darkness. About 10 o'clock, a sentry ran up to Lieutenant Jones and reported that the militiamen were only a short distance away. Jones ordered torches applied to the trails of gunpowder that led to the combustibles and barrels of powder that had been placed around the crates of rifles and the important machinery. With the arsenal and armory ablaze, Jones and his men set off northward, marching across the Potomac Bridge and heading for the army barracks at Carlisle, Pennsylvania, over 80 miles away. Marching into Harper's Ferry as the buildings at the Federal Works burst into flames, the Virginia militiamen, helped by some of the armory's workmen, eventually doused the flames and were able to save a significant amount of valuable material, including 4,000 muskets and most of the machinery. In fact, the rifle-making machinery was promptly shipped to Richmond, where it soon began churning out weapons for the Confederacy. When news of the fall of Harper's Ferry reached Washington the next day, April 19th, the Capitol continued on its roller coaster ride of emotions. On the 17th, they'd been dismayed to learn of Virginia's secession. Then on the 18th, they'd been thrilled to greet the men of the 1st Pennsylvania. But now, that joy quickly evaporated in the face of the news that hostile, well-armed Confederates were in control of Harper's Ferry, which was just a short two-hour train ride from the nation's vulnerable capital. In addition, the worried people in the capital knew that while the 1st Pennsylvania had been roughly handled on its way through volatile Baltimore, the next regiment on its way to Washington, the 6th Massachusetts, would probably not be so lucky. And indeed, as we'll see next time, by the time the Bay Staters fight their way through Baltimore, both soldiers and civilians will lie dead in the city streets, and behind the 6th Massachusetts, a fully stirred-up Maryland will cut the rail lines and telegraph lines that are Washington's only links with the North. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Siege of Washington, The Untold Story of the Twelve Days That Shook the Union by John Lockwood and Charles Lockwood. The Lockwoods tell a great story in their book, um, the kind of story that keeps you on the edge of your seat, even though you know what happens. And they use a lot of first-person accounts, and in that way they really manage to uh, convey the sense of urgency and dread that gripped Washington, D.C. during those days in April 1861 when the capital was isolated from the loyal states to the north. So that's The Siege of Washington by John and Charles Lockwood. And I think we'll probably steal that book title and use it for these two episodes, since it's pretty dramatic and attention-grabbing. I'm sure they won't mind. Anyway, as always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. We want to thank Spiritwood Music for permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, at the beginning and end of every episode. You can find Midnight on the Water and other songs by Spiritwood Music on both iTunes and Amazon, so check them out. And then as we close, we want to say thanks to y'all for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us next time when we continue with the story of the Siege of Washington. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.